Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, education reporter Jennifer Berkshire will discuss the teacher strikes in West Virginia and beyond. And at the bottom of the hour, veteran budget analyst Stan Collender analyzes the fiscal follies in Washington. First, teachers. The teacher strike in West Virginia took everyone by surprise, but now it seems to be spreading to other states. What does it all mean? Jennifer Berkshire is here to tell all. She's co-host of the education podcast, Have You Heard?, and is writing a book on schooling in the era of Trump. In the interview, she cites an excellent article in the New York Times by their education correspondent, Dana Goldstein, about the teachers in Oklahoma. A stunning sentence from that piece. Across the state, teachers say they make ends meet by selling their blood plasma or by working second jobs as luggage handlers, Uber drivers, or in lawn maintenance. Here's Jennifer Berkshire. Well, certainly a lot, there's been a lot of uh, digital ink spilled over the, uh, um, the West Virginia teacher strike. How significant uh, a milestone do you think it was? I think it was really significant. And I think the, the best way to measure that is to see what's already started happening in, in other states. You had this at least stalling in Kentucky where the um, Republicans have just been trying to do really evil things to the teacher pension program there. Um, and it wasn't just that they were they were out to cut the pensions of retirees, which is illegal, um, but their long-term goal there is to move new teachers into a 401k plan in a state where teachers don't qualify for Social Security. If that gives you any indication of sort of how they view the future of teaching as a profession. And then obviously Oklahoma is the next big state where teachers are talking about a walkout and lots of exciting things happening in Arizona where the teacher pay issue is melding with um, the most ambitious plan to expand school vouchers in the country, um, what the Koch brothers have called sort of their ground zero for the future of education. Most of this action is happening in fairly Republican states. Arizona is more complicated, but West Virginia, of course, has a has a very uh, lively labor history. But uh, does the conf- geographical configuration of this mean anything? Yes. Um, so the reason that you're seeing this happening in in these states is because these are the states where uh, Republicans really took over after the Tea Party wave elections, and they made the deepest cuts to public education and made really robust efforts to expand school choice. And so people feel this in their schools, and they're in those schools, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And so that's why you see um, not just the sort of teacher rebellion, but the public standing with the teachers. The labor history of West Virginia, what kind of impact did that have on, on the teachers' uh, attitudes and organization? I think it was significant in that, you know, that Mingo County, which is really the site of the historic and bloody contest between labor and, and the mine owners in West Virginia, was the first place where teachers walked off the job. But in my conversations with teachers there, the historic labor event that they cited wasn't some long ago mine dispute. It was the 1990 teacher strike. And that strike looked very different. It was a real strike in the sense that the school stayed open and teachers had to make the difficult decision about whether to cross the picket line. What was so interesting and different about this strike was that the state's 55 superintendents were the ones who shut those schools. Right. So you had basically administrators and teachers striking together. And you're seeing that same phenomenon happen in Oklahoma. And that makes it really different. It means that it's not a teacher strike. It means that it's more a walkout for and by the public education system itself. And so when you hear like a Betsy DeVos rail against the system, this is exactly what she's talking about. What are the superintendents uh, concerned about? face all the same problems that the, that the teachers are talking about. I interviewed a guy who's in a school with 32 um, teaching positions and 11 of them are vacant. They can't get people to move to West Virginia. They can't get people to stay when surrounding states offer more competitive wages. So the superintendents see this. What makes it so interesting, there's a great piece in the Um, New York Times today that Dana Goldstein wrote about Oklahoma, and she mentions that the the superintendent in Tulsa, who was this very high-profile, hard-charging superintendent from the bipartisan Arne Duncan Ed Reform days, you know, like really went after the 
the teachers in Rhode Island where she was in charge. And, you know, she was part of Bush's group, Chiefs for Change. And she gets to Oklahoma and she realizes that pay is so low that whatever sort of nefarious reform vision she may have had is just dead. And so she's out there now with the teachers. And, you know, Tulsa has said that they will probably close their schools so that the teachers can walk out. But didn't a lot of these ed reformers think that teachers were overpaid, so they are getting what they wanted, aren't they? That's really the the irony of this. Um, The thing that interests me most is the inability of Democrats to respond to all of this, you know, that they've been relentless in portraying teachers as coddled, as overpaid. They've been busily working to dismantle pensions in state after state. And so then when you see these... Democrats have been doing this at the state level. Democrats, the Democrats at the state level. And when you see these popular uprisings, you think, well, wow, this should be really fertile territory for the Democrats. But the reality is that at the top of the party and with their you know, very influential donor base, they have nothing at all to say about either teacher pay or public school investment. They would like to see an expansion of of charter schools and a weakening of a further weakening of unions. And you know, how do you how do you go to a state like Oklahoma and and run on that? You know, it's preposterous. Now, you follow this sort of thing more closely than I do, so maybe you know, but uh, I haven't seen any national democrat of any significance come out in support of uh, of the teachers. Uh, have they under the radar? No. I mean, what's so interesting, um, every time there's one of these special elections where a Democrat wins a seat, I rush to their website to see if they made public education an issue. And inevitably, it's the top issue. And it's because it really is a purple issue. And in state after state, they're responding to these really deep cuts. And so the irony is that you even have like a Scott Walker trying to run now in Wisconsin as the public education candidate. This is such easy, such low-hanging fruit for big Democrats to embrace this as their cause. But it's an issue that probably has the biggest divide between the donor base and the voting base in the Democratic Party, other than maybe trade. And then where are the teachers unions? Where have they been in all this? Obviously, you know, they were a heavy presence in West Virginia, but West Virginia is not only a right to work state, it's, you know, it's those unions are considered voluntary associations. And so for years, what held them back was that the unions would fight. If you're a teacher, not only do you get to decide whether you want to be in a union, you get to decide which union you want to be in, right? So you would have some teachers in a school who would be NEA members, some teachers who were AFT members. And then the the unions would spend a lot of time fighting over, you know, what that meant. It was news that they got together and participated in this. But if you really listen to the the teachers who were behind this, the unions were very much responding to an upsurge among the, the teachers. And you saw that when the unions announced, okay, we've got a deal, we're ready to go back in. And the teachers said, not so fast. Yeah, I heard some talk that the union leadership was actually nervous about the continuing militants of the teachers, that they wanted to cut a deal. They were afraid of uh, sanctions and fines and all kinds of things, uh, but the teachers just carried on. Is how, how do we understand this? That's absolutely the case. Like in, in many states, a teacher strike is illegal in West Virginia, and the teachers were basically betting that the fact that there were 700 vacancies, vacant teaching positions that couldn't be filled made it, you know, impossible for the state to fire them in mass. And the attorney general did make some threatening sounds. Um, the, you know, unions were clearly worried about where this was going to go. You know, could they lose and could they lose the public support that, you know, that at least in the, the for the the first part of the strike, they clearly had. I wasn't surprised at all to see that, that the unions were a little bit nervous. Now, the organization of this thing, um, you know, I've heard stories of Facebook groups. Uh, is that how it all spread? How, how did this all come to be? Yeah, and that, you're seeing the same thing in state after state, where teachers very effectively use fa- these closed Facebook groups to establish what are essentially virtual statewide organizations. And so in West Virginia, the schools are divided um, into 55 different districts, and a lot of planning went into this, but that was the primary way that they communicated. And this is happening, is this how it's spreading to other states? 
absolutely. You saw the same thing happening in Kentucky and Oklahoma. And then Arizona, I personally think, is the most interesting example because you really do have these just two different causes coming together. There wasn't enough attention to the fact that this grassroots movement in Arizona over the summer when, you know, remember when they had that heat wave and it was too hot to land a plane in Tucson? Um, There was this grassroots movement of parents that managed to gather, you know, 150,000 signatures against this effort to voucherize schools in Arizona. They want to shift to a model that's basically like an edu debit card. You guys would get your $5,000 per pupil spending on a um, a prepaid um, debit card. Bank of America has the contract. This is not a figure of speech. This is actually literally. This is literally the case. You can then use it to purchase whatever learning options. So it could be like supplies for homeschooling. Um, It could be like a down payment for uh, private school tuition. It would be up to you as the parent to decide. And so this grassroots parent group um, started collecting signatures and they forced the issue onto the ballot. So this is going to be a huge deal in 2018. And now that movement has is overlapping with what they call red for ed in Arizona, which is the teacher pay cause. Uh, $5,000 wouldn't go very far in the education space. Um, no, unless, um, I mean, the goal is to unbundle education from, you know, what DeVos refers to so disparagingly as, you know, the system or the school. You know, they don't like any of it. They don't, they don't like the democratic structures. They don't like, you know, the fact that there's a, a place in the community where people go, right? But if you're, um, if you're selling a virtual education product, that, that could add up pretty quickly. I'm speaking with the education journalist uh, Jennifer Berkshire. Yeah, that's an interesting point because you know, schools are in a lot of communities a sort of a gathering point, a real institution that keeps a community together. The right really doesn't like that, does it? No, and not at all. And I think that's why it's such an interesting thing to pay attention to, because to the extent that you have real resistance among Republicans to these ideas, and, you know, Betsy DeVos is unpopular, the dislike of her is bipartisan, and this is largely why, that in in states like Oklahoma, where, you know, these schools are really the community glue, people understand that blowing them up would mean the end of these communities. At post offices, too. They love to talk about community, but then they want to destroy any public institution that keeps them together. Those are the last two institutions that we, you know, feel entitled to as Americans, you know, that we still get the mail and that there's public education. And they're, you know, hell-bent on going after them. And that's why I think it's such a missed opportunity for Democrats. Well, yeah, now that was my next question. Uh, how do the Arne Duncan Democrats feel about this? Well, they have virtually nothing to say about it because their argument all along, like if you think back to sort of the turn in the Democratic Party, the DLC in the 80s, they put all their eggs in the education basket, right? That if your job was leaving, your plant was closing, well, you just needed to be retrained and you needed a better education and it was really your fault. And then in the Arne Duncan era, they they tried to sort of backwards plan that all the way to K-12, that... You know, the the problem was that your school sucked and, well, really what we needed to do was restructure them. We needed charter schools. We needed innovation zones. Um, We needed to get rid of teachers' unions or at least, you know, weaken them for the right reasons. And so when the education debate makes this intense rightward lurch, as it is now, those Democrats, the sort of accountability, Arne Duncan, Obama-era education reformers, have nothing to say. There's no constituency out there saying, yeah, we, we want to take a lot of tests and we'd really like you to come in and restructure our schools. To the extent that people are rising up, they're demanding, they want more funding, they want their teachers paid better. And, you know, these are popular causes. Any of the new Democrats, you know, the people in the post-Sanders environment, are they running on this? Well, I think you see more of it at the state level. We were joking earlier about Cynthia Nixon. I mean, she's putting this at the very center of her her platform. And, um, and you do see that suddenly school funding, which seems like the most boring topic in the world, has arisen as a touchstone issue. 
it's only a matter of time before the Democrats have to say something. Um, the, you know, the real question is, how quickly do we see the impact of, say, the Janus decision in the Supreme Court that if teachers unions, which have really been the loudest voice depending, uh, defending public education as an institution, if their role as the funders and sort of grassroots army of the Democratic Party is substantially weakened, what's left? And if it does it all then, um, do we just end up with billionaires? Because if that's the case, then you really will not see Democrats standing up for schools. Well, they have been doing a very good job of it now, though. No, they really haven't. Bob Fitch used to argue that the closed shop actually weakened labor over the long term. And listening to your tales of West Virginia, the fact that there were competing unions and no forced membership did bring about some militant innovation on the part of, of, of the teachers. Uh, and, you know, looking at a state like New York where the teachers union is very strong uh, and uh, they're politically dead uh, and uh, don't really do anything to fight uh, Cuomo's uh, privatization scheme. So... Is there a possibility that Janus could lead to a flowering of some kind of militants? That is really the irony of this, this whole thing, and that the people driving it so clearly don't know anything about labor history, right? And the extent to which you know, we have labor law as a way to control labor militancy rather than the other way around. I think that a lot of these Republican-dominated states that are pursuing these aggressive um, either efforts to punish teachers or just weaken, uh, weaken the teaching profession. I think that they were kind of banking that the Scott Walker strategy would be effective. And one of the, if you remember, you know, when they had all those huge rallies in the state house and, you know, the teachers discovered that they were actually viewed by Wisconsinites outside of Madison with some resentment that even if the uh, people loved their schools and were willing to raise their own taxes to pay for them, they still saw the teachers as privileged and, you know, frankly, overpaid relative to what what they were making. And I think that's a big part of the it's not just that the unions are weak in these states where we're seeing the uprisings. It's that the there isn't much to be resentful towards the teachers about, right? They're not viewed in, in as they are in, say, New York as, you know, earning vastly more than, than someone who's laboring away in Utica. So looking ahead, as we always have to end an interview with, um, where do you see this going? In Oklahoma, you know, they've already got a date um, for a walkout. I think they're talking about April 20th. And um, that will be different than West Virginia in that we already know that that all of the superintendents, that the sort of the educational infrastructure will not be closing down the schools in mass. Uh, the conditions on the ground really are so similar. You know, the heavy dependence on energy revenue as a funding source, um, and then the the same dynamics that you really saw in Kansas, where you have anti-tax zealots in charge and and people waking up um, to the fact that you can't have both of those things. You can't have a commitment to very, very low taxes, but then also fund public education. And it turns out that people really care about that, maybe more than, than the politicians driving this stuff understood. So yes, it continues on through um, Oklahoma, Arizona, and um, and then I think the real question is, does it make a leap to states that don't fit that red state, very Republican, very low tax um, profile? I'm, you know, I've got my eye on Michigan. I paid a lot of attention to DeVos's legacy in Michigan. Um, teacher pay dropped there over the past decade by more than 12 percent. You know, there's a lot of uh, the population is very restive about the state of the schools and the lack of investment in them. But it's also a state where unions were once very strong. That interview with DeVos was stunning where she said uh, she was asked what happened in the Michigan school system uh, in the wake of the reforms that she pushed. And she had no idea. I was kind of shocked by that, actually, because I, um, spent, I spent a lot of time in Michigan sort of documenting her legacy. And so, you know, 
I've been sort of relentless in arguing that she is not an idiot. <laughs> and I found that my, my cause experienced a real setback after her 60 Minutes interview. <laughs> because in, in Michigan, she really was just, uh, you know, she was a political power broker and, and really effective. And so the fact that she had so little to say about what, you know, about what her own policies brought about, I, I found kind of shocking. I, I was stunned, speaking of ghouls, um, I was stunned to see Terry Moe actually say a word of sympathy uh, to the, for the uh, West Virginia teachers. I mean, are some of these guys having second thoughts that they've gone too far or what? I do think that they worry a little bit about the, um, these, these places where clearly the long-term goal is to just, you know, dismantle the, the system. So one, you know, there's one kind of dreary bit of news that didn't get much attention, and that is that literally within hours after the strike ended in West Virginia, the legislature approved a measure that weakens the credentials for what you need to teach in West Virginia. And if you look, if you go state by state and all these states that are dominated by Republicans and by the really the corporate lobby, they're all headed in this direction, right? The response to teaching shortages is never to raise pay. It's to basically just enable any warm body to go stand in the front of the classroom. There's no popular constituency for this. And so I would think that even these ideologues who've been pushing various silver bullets have to look at this and think, you know, like this is not going to end well. Finally, um, we look at the, the labor landscape, which looks grim, but we see nurses and teachers really in the lead uh, doing inspiring uh, militant things. What does that say about the, the future of the labor movement? I think, Jane McAlevey, who I know you have had on your program before, I mean, I, I do think that she has a point in saying that those both happen to be huge occupations that can't be, uh, can't be relocated. And, um, you know, the fact that, that schools in particular are often the largest employers in, you know, particularly in, in rural areas in these small towns, that's why they're such a contested site, right? Like if you can, if you can significantly lower labor costs in your public education system or your public university system, you exert dr downward pressure on wages and benefits throughout a whole community. I think the teacher nurse uprising stuff um, in concert with the openness of millennials to new ways of organizing is all going to be really exciting. But the old labor configurations, and that's going to include, you know, the AFT and the NEA, are really in for it. I was Jennifer Berkshire, the co-host of the education podcast, Have You Heard?, who is writing a book about schooling in the Trump era. During the interview, we mentioned the Janus decision several times. This is a case before the Supreme Court, which will be decided in a few months. That will almost certainly invalidate the requirement in many jurisdictions that public sector workers pay union dues whether they want to or not. This will hammer the finances of the unions and significantly weaken them as a political force. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Schubert's Piano Sonata No. 20, D959, performed by Alfred Brendel. Next, Fiscal Follies. Congress has passed not an official budget, but a $1.3 trillion spending bill that keeps the government funded and open, although it's not law until Trump signs it, which isn't a fully done deal. It emerges from a place of political lunacy. 
Here's Stan Collender, who's been following federal budget politics for four decades to diagnose the madness. Collender's a professor of public policy at Georgetown and the columnist for Forbes. You can find him on Twitter as The Budget Guy. I want to apologize in advance for using impact as a verb in this interview. I don't know what came over me. So it seems like only months ago we were asking this question, but here we are again. Uh, what are the possibilities of a government shutdown? You know that Congress doesn't want to do it. Republicans are, are still hurting from the, uh, the uh, special election in Pennsylvania, and they don't want to have anyone else focus on their incompetence on, on the Hill. Democrats don't want to take the focus away from the Republicans' political agita. So um, it's not, if there's a shutdown, it's not going to come from Capitol Hill. It's going to come from Trump. And because of his uh, being so erratic these days, you can't dismiss the possibility out of hand. It's probably not more than a 25% chance, but that's tomorrow it could be 50, the day after it could be 75. And even if Congress does exactly what the president wants, which they're not going to do, he could be uh, just erratic enough to say, you know what, it's time for that good shutdown I've been threatening for months. Yeah, he mentioned that on Twitter a few months ago. What was he talking about? Any idea? Oh, sure. He was, he was thinking it was a good negotiating ploy, that, that you know, a government shutdown would uh, put the Democrats behind the eight ball, would force congressional Republicans to do what he wanted to do. Um, he was playing to his base more than anything else, but uh, he understands so little of legislative politics. He understands so little of how angry congressional Republicans are at him now that if a Trump, if, if President Trump caused the shutdown, the good, well, you know, first of all, it wouldn't be good, like he said. Uh, second, it would be Republicans running in 2018 who would take it in the neck politically, and that's not Trump, that's congressional Republicans. So this is something that congressional Republicans are going to do everything possible to get him to, uh, to uh, avoid, and there's no guarantee he's going to do it. In uh, Wolf's book, uh, Fire and Fury, he says that since Trump doesn't really understand anything, uh, he looks for people he can sort of contract out uh, things to. And uh, Paul Ryan was going to be his fiscal policy guy. What's the Trump-Ryan relationship now? Do we know? Well, I mean, if you've watched, the Ryan has been very reticent to criticize Trump. Uh, just this past week, he refused to bring up legislation that would uh, make sure that Robert Mueller's investigation goes forward, saying he, he talked to Trump and... Uh, Everything seems fine and that there's no firing in the that's imminent. Ryan seems to go, be going out of his way to protect Trump, not criticizing him on Russia, not doing a variety of things like that. How, having said that, though, the, the Ryan's not really giving in to the president very much on what he wants on a second tax cut. On uh, the, the, It looks like there may be money for uh, in one form or another for this, this tunnel between New York and New Jersey that the president doesn't want spent. So Ryan's not really giving in to the president. He's just not criticizing him very much either. And you said that uh, Trump well, was looking to have a shutdown as a negotiating tactic to get leverage to get things his way. What precisely does he want? The second tax cut? Anything else? Probably a second tax cut. He obviously wants uh, the investigation shut down or at least money cut off for it. Uh, you know, there, there are a variety of things on uh, the wall, tariffs, uh, you know, which he doesn't really need congressional approval for, but he wants to make sure he doesn't get congressional disapproval for. Um, he wants some spending cuts on the domestic side. Uh, so... My guess is there's an endless list of things that Trump would take if he could get them. Um, what, what, what he's not going to understand, though, is that a shutdown is going to get members of Congress, and particularly of his own party, very, very angry at him. And he's, he's likely to be what, what, what would happen with a Trump-caused shutdown is what happened to the Democrats when they caused a shutdown a, a few months ago. That is, they, Trump would get nothing uh, except from scorn from uh, members of Congress and from uh, his own voters. And how do the uh, Republican uh, performance, <laughs> their bad performance in recent uh, uh, special elections, how does that uh, impact the, uh, um, the fiscal politics? What you want to do now is get home and campaign. You don't want to remind people that you're inept at, at governing, and especially after, the, after the, uh, the loss in Pennsylvania and the repeated losses at state, state levels around the country. Uh, Republicans are feeling a lot of pressure. This wave is now starting to look like a tsunami. That uh, the, the Democratic, the potential Democratic wave in 2018. A lot of Republicans are very worried that money is not going to make up the difference. That is, their their, their benefits in in uh, uh, in the on the money level are not going to make up the difference that it has in the past. So what we're expecting this year, what I'm expecting this year, is almost nothing on legislation. That is, Congress is going to do nothing that's going to annoy people. They're not going to do a budget because they don't want to vote on a big, big deficit that they caused with the tax bill, uh, even though the budget, by the way, is, is required by, uh, by statute. They're not going to do one. Um, so 
as of April 1st, the way I count it, there are 45 legislative days left in between now and October 1st, the start of the fiscal year. And my guess is you're going to see another continuing resolution for next year, and Congress is going to get out of town, adjourn early, go home and campaign and campaign and campaign. <laughs> 45 days for what, six months? Six months. Uh, but, you know, the Congress takes off uh, a week in July, a week in May. Uh, they take off an extra week in election years and other months. That you've got all of well, you're gone in uh, in August uh, just because of the the summer recess, um, and then you're gone for a week in September. You've got Jewish holidays towards the end of September when Congress isn't working. It's entirely possible, not likely, but entirely possible that Congress is going to adjourn July 4th and basically not meet the rest of the year until after the election. Expect if there's going to be any anything done legislatively, it's going to be done in a lame duck session after the 2018 election, probably in a, a flurry of legislative activity between about the uh, third, second week in, in, in November and the second week, second, third week in December. Now, it's been a, something like a month, maybe a little more, since Trump uh, issued his budget. Presidential budgets are always uh, kind of a joke, but uh, this one was a particularly, particularly <laughs> amusing joke. Does anybody remember this thing, or is it dead, completely dead? Well, it was dead before it was sent up. It's not clear that Trump cares about it. It was just checking a box that he was required to do. For the first time that I can remember in the 40 years I've worked on the budget, the president wasn't even in the country when it was released. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. It was all Mick Mulvaney, his, his part-time OMB director. As far as I can tell, they're not pushing for it. They're not lobbying for it. It was just a bunch of proposals designed to – I mean, it was, actually, it wasn't a budget. It was more like a campaign press release issued as a budget of the United States government. I mean, there was nothing to it. It's not being debated by Congress. It's not going to get much of atten much attention the rest of the year or any attention the rest of the year. So this one not only was dead on arrival, it was dead before typesetting. You said that Nick Mulvaney is a part-time budget director. He's also running the Consumer Financial Protection Board, right? Right. How can you have a part-time budget director? Well, when you don't have much for the budget director to do, I guess you've got to find other things. Um, Look, it's not like they're doing a lot of oversight in at OMB, or that uh, they don't they don't uh, that they need a budget director to kind of continually marshal the budget process. I mean, they should already, believe it or not, be starting to work on next year's budget process. Budget that's 2020, um, and if it gets as little attention as this one on Capitol Hill, that is 2019, they can start working on it in December, and it won't make much of a difference. So, I've never seen this before, where you have a part-time head of CFPB. Consumer Financial Protection Board, and a part-time director of the Office of Management and Budget. It's the same person, and they think they can do a good job. That's, that tells you they're not planning on doing much budget-wise, regulation-wise, which is OMB's other responsibility, um, or on the Consumer Financial Protection Board side. But there's some things in uh, Trump's budget that did reflect some of his priorities, at least judging from his campaign rhetoric. Uh, the infrastructure plan, what was there? Was it anything? Okay, the technical term, and I'm going to clean this up, is that his infrastructure plan was utter nonsense. The initials BS come to mind, actually. Let's think about this. Um, the administration said it was a $1.5 trillion plan, but the president only proposed – let me get through this because it, 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 it takes like three sentences to explain. The president proposed, only proposed $200 billion in new spending. And from that, he thought it was going to get the state and local governments and private sector to generate another $1.3 trillion in economic activity. And that was over 10 years, right? That was over 10 years, yeah, sure. Um, and the first thing that happened was state and local governments and the private sector said, no way, we don't have the money, we're not going to spend it. If you want, want $1.5 trillion in infrastructure, you come up with it. The second thing is that as, as the budget analysts, uh, friends of mine, colleagues, and I looked at the, at the president's budget. Yes, he was proposing $200 billion or nearly $200 billion in new infrastructure spending, but he was also proposing to cut existing federal infrastructure programs by $200 billion. So net-net, Trump wasn't proposing to spend anything new, and somehow that was going to generate $1.5 trillion in infrastructure activity. As I said, the technical term for that is utter nonsense. It's not going to happen. It's, it, there's no money going to be provided for it under that plan. Um, and we're going to go another year without any kind of infrastructure program, either, even though the needs are rather desperate. Now, is there some sort of dastardly satanic genius behind all this, or is it just ignorance and laziness or just lies? What is this? Look, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not enough of a philosophical or religious person to tell you whether there's a satanic genius behind it, but um, I can tell you that this, this is a lack of experience in governing and a lack of care about governing. Uh, this is someone who's just perpetually campaigning and looking for headlines, 
whether or not the, the $1.5 trillion infrastructure program, for example, actually happens is irrelevant as far as Trump concerned. He got his headlines, and he's going to blame Congress for not doing it, or maybe just the Democrats for not doing it. This is not genius. This is this is uh, lack of attention to detail and, and inability to govern, to actually make things happen. It's one thing, you know, as you know, it's one thing to propose a plan. It's another thing to actually get it enacted. And Trump has no legislative chops whatsoever. And then there was his campaign uh, pledge to protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I'm not going to cut it, he kept saying. Uh, this is certainly one of the things that got him uh, working-class uh, discontented votes and you know, the, the declining heartland. But then the budget proposed cuts to those things, right? Well, not Social Security, um, but Medicare and Medicaid for sure. It's not clear that Congress is going to go along with them, although they've made some small changes in indexes and things like that. There's no real appetite on Capitol Hill, especially in an election year for taking on, in particular, Medicare and Social Security. And my guess is those, those efforts are going to be gone. But you're exactly right. That is, what Trump proposed in the campaign in 2016 seems to be inoperative now. He's saying what he needs to say. Uh, and to go back to an earlier question, this is something that Paul Ryan really wanted to do, which is go and take on Medicare and Medicaid. And it doesn't look like the president's going to get in his way if, if Ryan pushes it. And then uh, Trump also uh, proposed a raft of other spending cuts in, in, in the budget. And how does that comport with what uh, congressional preferences are? Well, all right, for, there's a lot to say here. Uh, first of all, for the first budget that Trump proposed in 2018, he proposed a variety of spending cuts, virtually none of which were accepted by Congress. And the president just agreed to go with what Congress wanted to do. So again, an example of proposing something. So we had a headline, but not necessarily being able to carry through. That was last year's budget. This year's budget... The president, uh, you may remember, but on, on the Friday before the budget was released, the president signed the big spending deal, enacting uh, oh, $160 billion or thereabouts in additional spending for defense and domestic programs. Then on Monday, the president proposed a budget that um, went along with all the defense dollars, but also demanded that some of the things he had just agreed to on the domestic side not be spent. Congress is going to reject all of that as well. That is, uh, everything the president said he didn't want to spend, even though he had just signed legislation approving it, Congress is, uh, is, is, going, to go, is going to reject. So, um, once again, the president will be not, not just rejected, but body slammed in terms of his legislative and budget priorities. Uh, Congress is going to go along. The deficit's going to be in the trillion or trillion-plus level annually, every year during the Trump administration, and probably well beyond that. I'm speaking with Stan Collender, who uh, teaches public policy at Georgetown and is also a columnist for Forbes. And what about his ludicrous and repulsive wall? Uh, it looks as if Congress may, and I'm, I'm, I, this is not final, may put in a, a small amount of money in, in this uh, omnibus appropriation that will prevent a government shutdown finally for this year, may put a small amount of money for border security, put in a small amount of money for border security. But it's not for the wall. It may be for, for some fencing or fixing some existing fencing, but nothing like what the president wanted, which was, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars to, to, to put up the concrete wall. You may remember the, uh, the photo op he did a couple of weeks ago in Southern California where they showed prototypes of the wall. Not going to happen. Uh, Congress doesn't want it. Uh, the people in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico don't want it. The members of Congress from those areas aren't going to vote to approve it, and there are many, many, many Republicans. The president is going to keep proposing it. He's not going to get it. And this could be one of the things where he, that get him to actually veto a, a continuing resolution or shut down the government. He may finally say, you know what, it's time. Either give me my wall or the government's going to stay shut until we get till I get it. And then uh, re uh, repealing Obamacare, how's that going? Uh, not going to happen. Um, they're obviously cutting pieces off where they can on a, through a, uh, executive orders. But um, for Congress to take another shot at repealing and replacing or just repealing Obamacare, would require that they pass another budget and then have the budget and then use the reconciliation procedures so they can avoid a filibuster in the Senate, just like they tried to do last year and failed. But as I said a few minutes ago, congressional leaders have already decided not to do a budget this year. Um, they have decided that even though it will prevent them from uh, using reconciliation and therefore allow a Democratic filibuster should they try to pass a, the Affordable Care Act repeal, they'd rather not pass a budget so their members don't have to vote in favor of a trillion-dollar deficit. So. Bottom line, a, a legislative effort to repeal and replace or just repeal Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, isn't going to happen this year. And depending upon the election results, probably may never happen again. Now, you've said several times that there's not going to be a budget this year, which is an extraordinary statement. Forming a budget is one of the most essential <laughs> functions of a government. 
How can you not sit down and write a budget as a proper government? Well, let me, let me say for the record, it's required by the Congressional Budget and Empowerment Control Act. That's a, a public law that dates back to 1974. But there have been many years where Congress has been in, unable or unwilling to pass a budget. It's seldom as willful as this one is. This is one where Mitch McConnell said at the beginning of the year, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, said at the beginning of the year, I'm just, we're just not going to do a budget this year. Sue me if you want. Uh, and then the new chairman of the, uh, of the House Budget Committee, Steve Wellback from Arkansas, said we're not doing a budget this year either. How can they do it? It's because there's no penalty for not doing it if, the, if voters don't vote against the people who willfully evaded the law, and they're not going to do it. The average American doesn't care about arcane legislative procedures. All they want to do is make sure that national parks are open when they get there and that they, 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 their checks come in on time from the government. And then the Treasury bond market seems not to be alarmed by all this. No, and that's, at some point that will turn around. You, you, I'm sure you remember the, the so-called bond market vigilantes that uh, got uh, Secretary of uh, Treasury Rubin to, to convince uh, President Clinton that he couldn't do the big spending and tax changes that he wanted to do because the bond market would react negatively and increase interest rates. So far, the bond market hasn't done that. Um, so far, even though we're facing trillion-dollar-plus deficits, I'm going to guess or estimate about a $1.4 trillion deficit for next year. That's 2019. The bond market hasn't reacted negatively to it yet, but at some point, whether it's uh, the Chinese or the Japanese or the Saudis or the, or, some, or the Norwegians or whoever buys U.S. bonds, or just American investors, at some point they're going to say, you know what, I don't need any or want any more U.S. paper. Uh, I don't think you're good for the money anymore, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish you for, for doing whatever, foreign policy or otherwise. And the bond market will turn around, and interest rates will start to go up, long-term rates. Short-term rates will be increased by the Federal Reserve in the meantime because the economy is going to overheat because of all the stimulus. So at some point, the bond market will react, but right now they're not doing it. Until that happens, uh, my guess is the members of Congress and the White House aren't going to feel any heat about the big deficits they're rising. The White House is betting that it doesn't that the bond market reaction doesn't happen before the 2020 election. My guess is interest rates will start to rise long before that. Uh, and uh, so the, the Republicans in the Congress don't want to sign their names to the trillion plus deficits that their own legislation created. Correct. Right. It's correct to say that there were four consecutive trillion dollar deficits during the Obama administration, but those weren't legislatively created. Yes, there was a short-term stimulus plan that was designed to get us out of the recession, but they were mostly caused by economic, by poor economics, uh, by, by the recession itself, by low growth, those types of things, high unemployment. These trillion-dollar deficits are different for two reasons. One, they're not caused by the economy. That is, they're not cyclical in nature. They're structural in nature. They're, they're, they're caused by permanent changes in tax and, and spending law. Uh, the big tax cut and the, and the spending deal from last month. That means that they, I mean, they were created at a time when, by legislation, when the economy is doing well. So when the economy gets worse again, which it will at some point, we haven't repealed the business cycle, but when the economy gets worse again, the deficit's going to go up not from zero, but from a trillion dollars. Uh, in fact, in case no one else has said this to you, expect a $2 trillion deficit at some point in the next five years. $2 trillion. Now, that's a big number even by the standards of the U.S. government. Oh, yeah. But we're talking about permanent. This is the other big change in, in because of what, of what Congress just did with the deficit. We're talking about permanent trillion-dollar deficits every year for as long as you can think. No one seems to understand that what's happened over the last few months on, on fiscal policy, on the budget, is the fiscal equivalent of a political realignment. Balancing the budget, which has always been a goal since the beginning of the, uh, of the republic, is now gone. There's no, virtually no political will to do as much as would need to get done to balance the budget. So from now on, just getting the deficit down to a trillion dollars will be considered balance. Uh, now, you had a column recently in Forbes uh, arguing that uh, the frequent pundit refrain, refrain that the budget process is broken is all wrong because Republicans like this budget process. What do they like about it? Look, it's very simple. Think about last year. The budget process, because they could use the budget to put in place reconciliation, which would prevent a Democratic filibuster. The budget process allowed the Republican leadership to debate both the tax cut and the, uh, the attempt at repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act without worrying about that Democratic filibuster. So it, it, the budget process allowed the Republican leadership to do exactly what they wanted. This year, as we've already talked about, 
the budget process isn't forcing the Republican leadership to do anything it, it doesn't want to do because it's, they're, they're, they're willfully avoiding doing a budget resolution. The, their members don't have to vote on trillion-dollar deficits. So think about this. Yes, everyone complains about the budget process. Yes, everyone says it's broken. Last year, the process allowed the Republican leadership to do what it wanted to do, and this year isn't requiring the leadership to do something it doesn't want to, it doesn't want to do, that is, it wants to avoid. So from the leadership perspective, the process is working just perfectly. Yeah, you, you take a little uh, pundit uh, criticism uh, for not doing what the law requires, but it's not clear that anybody would have the standing to sue Congress to force them to get it, to done, to get it done. Voters aren't taking any retribution against members of Congress who don't vote for budgets or don't implement the law as required. So what's the problem here? I mean, yes, it's broken from a, a specialist and expert perspective because it's not doing what we want done. But from a political perspective, from the Republican leadership perspective, it's doing exactly what they want to do. So, you know, this, this, this super committee they set up, this new super committee to come up with changes in the budget process – by Thanksgiving, almost certainly going to fail because nobody really wants it to do anything or change anything very much from the way it is now. And, and now we're speaking just uh, several days after the death of Peter Peterson, who was uh, our leading uh, budget scold for decades. And that, that crowd, the whole you know, deficit alarm crew, uh, were, were pretty quiet the last few years because the deficit was rather small. Now it's getting fat again. Are we going to see that uh, a revival of that uh, kind of uh, finger-wagging deficit scold uh, uh, line? Well, the deficit scold groups, the Committee for a Responsible Budget, the, the Concord Coalition, even the, uh, the, the House Freedom Caucus were body slammed this past year. I mean, they, they, their, their policies weren't just rejected. They, they, were, they were just destroyed, stomped on, um, and, and basically left for dead. Uh, the, biggest, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which, was a Peter, which is a Peterson group, a Peterson funding group, was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, loser in all of this. Uh, during the uh, Obama administration, they, they pushed and pushed and allowed themselves to be used to say the deficit shouldn't be increased. And then the same people who didn't who used them, the, the Freedom Caucus and Republican majority, um, turned around and, and told them to go scratch and increase the deficit dramatically, both in spending and taxes. Um, so I think these deficit scold groups are basically have, have lost their way and lost their, their authority. And while they may try to make to, to try to say that the things are terrible and shouldn't get any and should be made better, that is the budget should be balanced and spending should be offset and and taxes should be paid for, tax cuts should be paid for. No one's going to listen to them anymore. No one realize, everyone now realizes that it's it's like the king without not wearing any clothes. They don't have any any real support on either the Democratic side or the Republican side, and certainly not among the among voters. Well, back during the Reagan years, uh, centrist Democrats became the, uh, the big uh, uh, proponents of fiscal orthodoxy. Are we going to see that again? There will be pockets of that. Those were the blue dog Democrats. And then you had the, the House Freedom Caucus during the Republican years. Um, here's the bottom line. The math is very different now. When you're talking about a trillion-dollar deficit with a budget that's $4, trillion, you're talking about roughly a 25% across-the-board cut to balance the budget. Now, that wouldn't happen by itself when you realize you can't cut interest on the debt. I mean, you legally can't. You're not going to cut Social Security or maybe probably not Medicare, um, and, and you're not going to touch military spending. Then literally, believe it or not, there's not enough spending left to cut, even if you got 100% of what was left to balance the budget. So the best that – whether it's a blue dog-type Democrats or a freedom, House Freedom Caucus-type Republicans – the best they would be able to do going forward is to acknowledge that the trillion-dollar deficit is here to stay and that anything new would have to be paid for. But as we've seen in the past, as we've seen in the past three months, even those types of things break down. When there's something that members of Congress and the White House want done, then budget norms go out the window. So um, is it possible you get pocket to this when the, when the interest rates start to rise, the average voter will start to realize that deficits affect them directly? But that will fade away as interest rates start to go down again. So, uh, again, I think we've entered a new era, uh, a new era of American fiscal politics where um, there's not as much concern about, uh, about deficits and debt as there have been in the past simply because there's not as much you can do about it. The only thing they might be able to do would be to print more money, and that would, do, that would get you another politically destabilizing uh, statistic of inflation. So I, my guess is it's going to be a while before any of this comes back to bite anybody. Politically. Is this any way to run a government? 
it's not any way to run a railroad, a Boy Scout troop, a Little League team, or you know, or a government. But we've had so many years of, of, of deficits in this country, and, and the debt is now $20 trillion or thereabouts. Um, it's hard to say that it's not the norm. Uh, in fact, it is the norm. There have been more years of deficits than, uh, than surpluses. Stan Collender, veteran budget watcher, professor of public policy at Georgetown, and Forbes columnist. You can find him on Twitter as The Budget Guy. Interesting point about the bond market vigilantes whom Stan Collender talked about 10 minutes ago. They're active during the Clinton years, making sure that his noises about investing in people didn't get turned into actual policy. And he just raised their taxes. But creating trillion-dollar-plus deficits via tax cuts to the rich is okay, so the bond market vigilantes are off-duty. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Barnaby Hardly Working by Yola Tengo. Till next week, bye.